In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path to omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening and welcome. How's everyone this evening? So I hope you're okay with my plan that uh, tonight we, we go through these two the remainder of this chapter and then the next chapter and then next week we have a review and then we take a, a gap for a week and then we come back and finish the book basically along with uh, another review but it'd be good to like uh, sort of digest the material we've been going through thoroughly particularly this uh stuff about the different objects has turned out to be very challenging which is great because it's really one of the most important things so let's spend time to go through it so i'm of the belief that we're on page uh, 255 does anybody feel differently or the same did you say that in terms of pages or mm -hmm. Uh, let's see, we're in the chapter called How the Mind Engages Its Objects, which is chapter 17, and the section called How Do Images Appear to Sensory Cognitions. Did we complete the section before that? Yes. That's When I came back, that's where we were, right here. How do images appear? Which is my page 211. 211, cool. You have a hard copy or, or no digital? Digital. Does that help, Cynthia? I'm uh, I'm getting there. Sometimes they might depending on what um, platform Program. you're using, it may yeah. or may not be the same, but I'll probably be closer. Somewhere around two eleven. Does it change depending on how you, how wide you make the screen? I'm not sure about that. No. Don't I don't think so. I don't think so. Not not on mine. What's what is my program? Okay. Buddhism is all about epistemology, not ontology. The higher schools, right? The lower schools are all about ontology. Somebody told me they watched a, a talk by Ken McLeod on his new book, The Magic of Vajrayana. And that was their main takeaway. That made sense. Was what again? That Buddhism is about epistemology, ah. not not ontology. Uh -huh. It's about how we know what we know, not what we know. 
not what is, but how we experience it, how we know what is. Isn't he giving a talk this week too? I think, I think so. Yeah, I think it's Boston. Through Boston. Cool. cool. No, I, I, actually, I'm sorry. It's next week, I think. Sorry. <laughs> okay. How do images appear to sensory cognition? The plot thickens. With respect to the view that when a sense consciousness realizes its object, realizes is a key term there, or a key aspect of the process, when a sense consciousness realizes, okay, recognizes, apprehends, uh, cognizes its object, it does so by means of an image. Some raise the following objection. In this view, when one is, say, viewing a painting with various shades of color, there might exist images matching those various shades of color, which is often the case, if, unless it's like a modernist painting, right? For without an equal number of images, I'm sorry, there might exist images in the sensory consciousness matching those various shades of color in the outer object of the sense consciousness. For without an equal number of images, this would mean that cognition does not perceive images commensurate with the object, which in turn suggests that consciousness lacks the ability to realize its objects, or objects, sorry, just as it is. Furthermore, since the consciousness cannot be a different entity from the images, if images matching the variety in the object were to exist, then there should also exist an equally manifold consciousness matching the plurality of images. So we've uh, jumped to another level of complexity here in terms of how cognition happens. When we cognize an object, do we, what do we cognize one object with one consciousness? Or are we able to cognize multiple objects at the same time? And if we cognize multiple ob objects at the same time, do we create multiple images of that multi multivaried object? And if we have multiple images in the, in the sense consciousness, do we have multiple consciousnesses. They have this interesting part of the sentence that says, since the consciousnesses cannot be a different entity from the images, because the images appear in the consciousness. And so you can't say there's a difference between the consciousness and the image, which is already a little bit of a problem. But so they're stretching the theory of of cognition is happening through the consciousness of images that appear within the consciousnesses. Historically, the following three standpoints emerge in response to this fundamental problem. The proponents of an equal number of subjects and objects says that when manifold images of an object appear to a consciousness, that consciousness is also manifold. Now, by the way, is there ever a, a, a cognition of just one object? 
Cynthia. I'm, I was wondering, even when you raised the prior questions, that what in this case is our definition of object? Because, for example, if you're taking a visual cognition where we supposedly only see shape and color, but we tend to, you know, when we think object, we're thinking, you know, Gomden or Apple or whatever it might be, right? Um, so is the, are we talking about object as the whole thing? Like, you know, if the apple is both red and green, you know, so we're seeing a half round and half, I mean, half red, half green round shapes or whatever it is, you know, that I'm wondering how, you know, it can break down to that level of what's the object you see, a half circle of red, a half circle of green or an apple. Yeah. Red what's, what's your opinion? Well, I mean, I mean, I, like I said I, before, I think some of these different theories, um, what is my opinion of it? <laughs> what is your view? Are we, are we talking about objects in the sense of, um, aggregates aggregated at atomic phenomena or are we talking about shape and color sound smells etc well i i'm the only reason i'm thinking is that when we talk about apprehended objects we talk about different characteristics of them i think and so therefore that means that the object may be whatever we sort of think of as an entity like the apple and then the characteristics might be round and red and green and all those sort of things. Well, they didn't use the word characteristics here, did they? Yeah, I think that came from some of your earlier talks on the topic. Right, but um, they didn't use that, no. Yeah, so uh, I think we should sort of try to figure out in this example. Yeah, I mean, it like seems- we're. Yeah, when it talks about sort of the idea of one unitary image appearing to one consciousness, that could seem like it could just be like a unitary image could just be the red half of the apple or whatever, you know, the half round, you know, particular shape. Mm-hmm. Don't know. Do other people have an opinion on this issue of what the object is? I'd say it's a whole object that a appears to one consciousness at a time. <laughs> Can I add at a time? Because <laughs> you would have like visual and sound. Well, the example here is a painting, right? A painting. So if you're talking just image, yes, one whole image. When one's, one is, say, viewing a painting with various shades of color, there must exist images matching those various shades of color. That suggests the way they say it, that images relating to those specific, that that's multiple images within the painting. That's my intimation of the situation. Yeah. yeah okay. Just that's what I really need to check on. It seems like that. Yeah. Okay. So let's go on that basis unless anyone objects. Historically, the following three standpoints. So proponents of an equal number of subjects and objects says that when manifold images of an object appear to consciousness, that consciousness is also manifold, which is logical in one one sense that if you have different images, there might be different consciousnesses perceiving the different colors or shapes. 
in the case of visual consciousness. On the other hand, having multiple consciousnesses at the same time is a little bit of a conundrum. Well, would they have to be at the same time? Does it say it would have to be at the same time? Or is it just that we would be sequentially perceiving them all and we sew them together in our conceptual minds? Well, it's a good question. There was no indication of time period here. Opinions on uh, on this topic of time? Well, the, I have a problem with the multiple because that would be combinatorially explosive. A <laughs> mind like follow. I mean, there's just looking at my screen. That's how many consciousnesses there. I could just go on forever, and how many there would be. Okay, so you're a proponent of uh, option two. So option two is that half agus say that just one unitary image appears to one consciousness. It, it seems to me the smart money is there's only one consciousness because right. the whole system's built around that. They don't want it. And so then the question is, is what we're seeing one image with a million shades or a million images of one shade, all of which get reduced to one consciousness? Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of semantic, but it's not clear from this. It's like either one of those seems to be workable and in tune with our experience and with the Dharma as it's presented to us. But I don't, what are the ramifications of choosing either two, number two or number three? Number two, so it's a, just one unitary image appears to one consciousness. And number three is the non-pluralists say that manifold images appear to one consciousness which is sort of more like what chris was saying that i see the screen the zoom screen on my laptop display and i'm seeing multiple images now the other part of the equation is that when you stare at your screen how much of your screen do you cognize at one time the issue of attention that we're not actually, we can't really see all, we don't really see all of it at one time. Right. That was what I was thinking too, is that it's, while we think of like the whole painting as if we're seeing it all, you never can really do that. Well, as you're looking at one spot, like particularly here where people move a little bit, right? So. Uh, if we look at the speaker, you know, I'm now the speaker, or when Cynthia speaks, we look at the speaker. But you can also see other people move that you're not looking at. So is your consciousness, when that happens, does your consciousness move from Cynthia to those other people moving? Or can you sort of unconsciously register their movement? Well, you're conscious of it, but well, when you say your consciousness, I mean, you're talking as if there's only one consciousness, but isn't it, isn't it a new consciousness arising that's, you know, seeing something out of the corner of it, your eye, essentially, or however well, it is? Well, I'm saying at, at, at one moment, at one moment, I'm looking at you as you're speaking, 
And at the same time, I can see other people move. At the same time? It seems that way. Yeah, so you have one image. And I can see the screen. I can even see my room. Yeah. But I'm taking that extra step of choosing a focus. Right. And you can move it around. I mean, we do this all over. I can, move it around. I can not... have the other things peripherally there. It's one image. So that's all that whole image is in my head. And when but you then, when you look at a painting, you scan it just like you do with the Zoom screen. You can scan. You look around at different people, and as you're looking at one person or one part of the painting, you sort of see the other parts. But aren't those all like a series of little consciousnesses? I mean, that I I still feel that's, like we that's that's one proposition. Uh, flesh that out. So I'm looking at you speaking, and Mary Beth moves her hand. So. Are you saying that as I'm looking at you, you speaking, there's a very short moment of consciousness that has shifted to Mary Beth's hand, and then it okay. shifts back to you speaking? And I right. sort of don't really notice it because it's so quick, and I think I've been looking at, at you the whole time. That's right, and, and, and that each of those are actually separate consciousnesses, even though we, because we think we're single, unitary, beings with minds that are single as well you know even though we know conceptually that these things are you know the consciousness moment to moment we don't tend sequentially. to sequentially right they're sequential right but so i think each of those you know the i the what the different things that the eye attends to or whatever it may be or likewise the sound that you might suddenly attend to those are just different consciousnesses arising Okay, so let's take this, this example further. So when Cynthia speaks and we look at Cynthia, which part of Cynthia do we look at? Do we see all of Cynthia that's on the screen? Do we see her glasses, her smile, her nose? You know, and are we not seeing the other parts? How much, you know, we're seeing some part of her. How much are we seeing in that scene? I don't is see it, her at all because I'm looking behind her, seeing if the cat comes out. <laughs> you're waiting for the cat. I'm waiting for the cat to come out. But our eyes are focused on some small little part, right? And so how big is that that area that we actually see when we see? And are there different colors in that area? So Let's uh, play this out a little bit <laughs> and look at Cynthia. <laughs> ah! <laughs> so here's I Cynthia. I, I don't. I use gallery view, so I don't really even just look at the speaker. I'm always looking at the. the often looking at the gallery. So anyway, right. sure, try to look at my yeah. eyes. Right. So we look. How about her left eyes clear for me? And uh, so I can see her Her left eye has the color blue in the iris, and then it has a, a light spot in the middle where the, the light is reflecting on it, right? And so when we look at her eye, are we seeing the whole iris with the pupil? No? What are we seeing, Mary Beth? I just... 
I see some like a circle and another little circle in in it. Like okay, I just so, see colors. Okay, but you said plural colors, so you're seeing more than one color. Yes. And more than one shape. You see two circles. Yes. Definitely. Okay. So are those different separate images in your consciousness that are perceived by separate consciousnesses? No. Well, so, actually, I mean, me naming and identifying that it's three, you know, circles, like that's, I mean, that's way after the moment of me just seeing them at first. Right. But so before naming them, just, you know, if you just look. I, I see several different colors and several different shapes right okay so yeah right okay so even in the very small bit of her that we see at any one time actually focus on you see different colors and shapes and so are those uh different colors and shapes represent or replicated in the consciousness by different images that are cognized or apprehended by different consciousnesses or does one consciousness cognize a multicolored image how's I think, that i propose I think that's that it. yes in a moment in a moment uh one consciousness cognizes m multiple colors and shapes yes or yes because the, the eye doesn't differentiate them as different objects right the eye doesn't think oh i'm seeing three different circles and two different colors or whatever it is by eye in this context do you mean visual consciousness thank you the visual consciousness <laughs> let's be precise here so uh, any any uh, consenting or uh, dissenting opinions. <laughs> Shall we release her from the spotlight? <laughs> no, I agree, but I, I feel like we always run into this wall of we we all recognize the eye faculty is dumb, but it gets a little confusing. Like how smart is the visual consciousness? Yeah, yeah, that's a hard one, and different. There's different views on that. The the, the two main views, obviously, are that, or not obviously, but are, I think, that the eye consciousness character discriminates the different colors and maybe even identifies the object or the eye consciousness simply registers without even noticing different colors. But, um, so where are we in this? Are we proponents of an equal number of subjects and objects? I think we dispensed by the, with that one. Were, were people in agreement with what Mary Beth and I proposed that there's one object that has multiple colors and shapes cognized by one sense consciousness? And uh, so that sounds like a, a half agist. One unitary image appears to one consciousness. Is that? I'm, oh, I thought I was thinking you were think manifold images appearing to one, but you're saying unitary because 
you don't think of them as being separate images, even though she was describing multiple colors in the eye? Yeah, I think of it as a multicolored single image. Okay. So it's one painting appearing to a consciousness, so to speak. Yeah. In painting image, yeah. Hmm. Well, let's continue. And I don't think that, but I don't think that's what I thought. Okay. Like, I think that, I think it's the many images appear to one consciousness. Well, remember, images are not outer objects. You're saying number three then, Mary Beth, is that right? Right. So you're saying then the image is the only, only the thing that's inside? That's that's what we've been learning, uh, you know, since okay. images appear as a sensory cognition. So uh, going back to the beginning of this section, with respect to the view that when a sense consciousness realizes its object, it does so by means of an image. Where's the part about, though, like, um, I want to see Cynthia's eyes, so that's what I see. If I wanted to see her books, I would see her books. If I wanted to see details on her glasses, I would see that. Like all of those images are like appearing at the, or like, you know, there's like seven squares. They're all there, but they're all appearing. I'm just not like honing uh -huh. in and naming and reducing down to something. So it's your, is your eye, your physical eye zooming in? Or is it your eye consciousness that is focusing? So your eyes just, the only way your eye changes is by light, right? Your pupil will change and stuff, but. I think it's like my mind, like there's a mind. It's your mind, your mind has the, con the eye consciousness has kind of like a flashlight ability. So it's moving, it's moving around in the image and, and shining, not physically shining, but shining brighter where it wants its attention to go. It's hard to describe. Yeah, I don't, this I don't know if that helps. <laughs> this relates a little bit to the different types of objects in some ways, because the, there's lots of appearing objects, but they don't all become the, um, you know, engaged object or the one that you're actually focusing on in one of the readings i've been doing they, they talk about they use the term principal object i'm still sorting out that terminology it's very complicated but um but basically you talk about there's there may be lots of appearing objects whether in the zoom screen or when you look out the window or whatever but you're not not all of them become the focus and that's where the whether attention or other mental factors come into play Right? Okay. Well, uh, so you haven't you haven't created the chart yet. We got to work I, on the chart. I have. Oh. It, I'm working on it, but that Geshe Robton is really off the charts on being different, and I'm trying. So I've actually created a chart just for that one, so that I can reconcile it because they actually have four, not including the apprehended. They mention the apprehended in a footnote, but they say they're not gonna deal with it because it's larger than the same as the appearing, which means they have three others, you know, conceived, referent, and principal. So I'm still, I'm, I'm definitely working on it, but 
that one really threw a wrench in because it wasn't lining up neatly with the others. Ah, we'll come back to this in a minute and we'll we'll help you reconcile that. How's that? Yeah, I mean, if you want, I can even put it on the screen if you all want to wrestle with it. Yeah, in a, in a minute, in a minute. Let's but, do that. But, no, but no, let's, don't want to tie you up. Yeah, let's deal with this uh, issue, which is a really uh, a major issue. And it's a little bit odd that it, it, it isn't addressed. And I don't, I've never really seen it addressed, which is... I find really odd, but if I understand, uh, Mary Beth, there's and then Chris. I think there's actually two things going on. One is um, as we're talking, as we're all here, either talking or listening, whatever we're doing, our eyes are moving around, right? Somebody's directing our eyes to move, right? And our consciousness is going back and forth between thinking and see, and paying attention to what we're seeing and also listening, hearing words, right? We're also hearing what I'm saying right now and we're connecting those sounds to words and those words to meanings. And we're doing that in a rather sort of almost subconscious automatic way without even thinking, right? That whole thing is going on. And similarly, we're seeing images and we're automatically uh, uh, recognizing, let's say, people, computers, eyeglasses, heads, hands, you know, walls, clothing, pictures on walls, bookcases, and every all sorts of things, right? So, so there's that... Um, there's that labeling, automatic labeling process going on of what things, so-called things are, which is not happening at the level of sense consciousnesses because sense consciousnesses don't see objects, they see shapes and colors, right? So there's a, 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 an automatic associative process going on in the ear hears sounds and it doesn't hear words right but there is a little bit of a gray area as i think eric was uh, referring to earlier like where exactly does the recognition of the word the as i say it as the word the as opposed to a sound happen does that happen in the sense consciousness or does it happen in the mind, the sixth consciousness? And similarly with sight, when we look at the glasses, do we, <coughs> does that happen in the eye consciousness or in the mind consciousness? And then there's the issue of, um, okay, we're, we're uh, theoretically, we're, we can, when we think about it, we can direct our vision around and look at different things as opposed to it happening sort of unconsciously. We can look at, each of us in the squares you can you know scan the squares and look and see who's in which square um but then we come back to that issue of like when you look at cynthia's eye you see more than her eye because you can't your eyes are not that sharp to pinpoint just the eye so um 
we're uh, we're seeing multiple images in that case, and we're uh, labeling eye or eyeglasses or head, but um, is is the image you know? So is is the image that appears in the sense consciousness is the image a replication of everything that's being seen? Uh, sorry, that's that is uh, projecting light into the eye. It's, does everything that projects light into the eye create an image in the sense consciousness? And then where does that that process of like what to look at from the visual field, does that happen in the eye consciousness? Or is the mental consciousness sort of telling the eye consciousness to look at some part of the visual image that's in the that's in the sense consciousness right so i don't know i, I you know the only the the only thing that comes sort of close to that is that i think you've all been in this in in classes where we've gone through this uh, presentation of how cognition occurs in the Theravadan Abhidharma system, where there's this uh, name Bhavanga that's applied to the resting consciousness, <laughs> as well as a hit song, but in this case, it's uh, applied to the resting consciousness, and which people like Alan Wallace associate with the eighth consciousness, the Alia. And when we look at something, um, we, we look at a lot of, we see rather a lot of visual objects with our visual consciousness and they impinge on our consciousness in, in that they, they project an image into our consciousness, our sense consciousness, our eye consciousness, but we don't actually register them until somehow the visual consciousness is directed to a particular part of the visual image for you know it was like i don't know 17 impingements or something and then it finally registers as the object of sense cognition do people remember that but they didn't they didn't really play it out as to like okay is that what's happening in the way that I just described it, where when we look, we're seeing like a zillion different things. And, you, you know, it's like you, you have the example of like, let's say you're out in nature and you're looking for a certain bird or something. And you're sort of scanning the scene. And suddenly there's movement and your eyes focus in. And so, yes. Um, this keeps reminding me of that exercise that we did mm. in class with this. You start with this small area. Yeah, when we do that, and and I say, you know, start with a small area, and I'd say, okay, spread your consciousness through that area and perceive all of it at once. Are we actually able to do that? <laughs> Well, um, maybe. 
maybe how kind of but then when you when i i remember doing that and it was kind of like i could feel it like it made me feel dizzy and kind of in my stomach like <laughs> you know the secret is that the only way to do it is to shift your attention to a different frame right so that you're not focused on the visual feel you know because i i have you like gradually expand the box until it's the whole visual feel and i'd say see the whole visual feel without looking at any one part of it and i think the only way you can really do that is by not paying attention to the visual feel which i think is what we do when we when we are in meditation where where uh, the visual field is actually in the background when we're when we're present as soon as you like slip into a certain type of thought your eyes focus on a spot right but then when you become present and mindful you relax and diffuse the gaze and your your mental focus becomes either thoughts which is mostly what happens or maybe the breath here and there, or the, the posture. But anyway, there's all well, these different questions about how cognition of sense objects happens that they don't really address in, in the way that we just talked about it. All they ever do is they address it in this way. And somehow they feel that they've covered it in, these, in this issue of does consciousness uh, experience multiple objects with multiple consciousnesses at the same time, or does it take in a multivariate? Does a multivariate object become a multivariate image that's perceived by one consciousness? And so, I guess they're talking about on the moment-to-moment -moment level. But they're not. They don't really talk about the uh, the agent and how the agent moves the eye attention through that image. Anyway, yeah, which is what I I see. This is basically they're just talking about eye consciousness, not all yeah. the other layers that follow, right. and then go back and forth. And they're just saying, how does that image get in? Uh, so, so I think what the the takeaway is, or the take home from this is, is that when you drill down into how does cognition happen, it actually becomes incredibly complicated, and um, any description of it begins to fall apart at some point, and it it basically becomes inex inexplicable. I think, I don't know, but uh, but it's uh, and so I think the sorry the takeaway is the activity of trying to understand how cognition happens using whatever framework you've developed to use it creates a process of uh, basically insight meditation of like looking at how's my mind working, observing the mind. And gradually realizing that all of the conceptual structures that I try to create to describe and explain uh, 
how my mind is working none of them really work and at, and then at, and then ideally we let go and we're able to experience it in a direct valid cognition of just the sense consciousness without trying to uh, explain it but I, th I think that the process of breaking it down, labeling each part, identifying each aspect of the of the process and trying to figure out how they interact and operate is what makes the uh, resulting letting go more and more po poignant. And that if you don't do that process of analyzing things in great detail, the uh, letting go into bare experience doesn't have nearly as much power, let's say. I don't know, you know, and we, we, we've seen this where uh, there's been presentations of how to do like analytical meditations and um, looking at the basic uh, the most basic exercise in analytical meditation is to compare the sense of a self to the aggregates. And if you do that in a, in a very vague way of like, okay, we say my sense of self is continuous, unitary and autonomous. And I know my, my body is not unitary. My mind is not unitary. So therefore there's no, there's a disconnect my, between my, projection and the reality and so i'm going to let go of that sense of self we know that it has very little impact on our ability to actually let go of the sense of self right but to the to the extent that you go through it in great detail and actually try to feel the projection first the projection of the sense of self and then the disconnect between the actual experience of the skandhas that we project it on, it has way more power. Anyway, that's a large uh, uh, wandering from this topic. <laughs> so let's continue to go through it, given that there are many conundrums that this explanation of the system raises. Okay, so. Uh, we, are, we have these three choices. Uh, the third one was manifold images appear to one consciousness. These three viewpoints will be explained in more detail later in volume three. It's always good to postpone it, procrastinate. Uh, most Chittimatrans and Madhyamaka thinkers accept the non-pluralist view that manifold images appear to one consciousness which was sort of like what we came up with, a multi, a multi-varied, multi-colored image appears to one consciousness. To be the correct standpoint, this view maintains that there's no need for two distinct eye consciousnesses, which is sort of a non, non, not acceptable position, and so on to be present in order to apprehend multi, manifold colors based on some such multi-colored object. And they apprehend multifold, manifold rather colors as a manifold, uh, multicolored image 
um, based on some multicolored object. The single eye consciousness apprehends the many hues all at once. Okay, so that's uh, you know we we've set up this this whole system of description of our experience of the world, starting with Dudra, the collected topics. You know what are the uh, the different dharmas, matter, mind, and so forth. And now in how the mind works, we went through different types of minds uh, and different mental factors and different types of cognition and trying to figure out how they work. So now, given that whole setup, then we try to like figure out how do different types of cognitions happen in that system. So we just went through sense cognition, and now we go through this uh, way of explaining different types of cognition in terms of engagement versus affirmation, uh, engagement via affirmation or an affirmative cognition versus engagement versus an exclusionary cognition. To understand how the mind engages its objects, it's crucial to recognize that there are two different ways in which it can do so. It can engage the object via exclusion and it can engage the object through affirmation or through the capacity of the real object itself. Given the great importance of understanding the difference between these two ways. <laughs> so in the tradition, there's this is of great importance. Might not have kept you up uh, at night before this moment, but from now on, it will definitely be one of those things that keeps you up at night. Um, add it to your list. Uh, between these two ways, we offer below a brief explanation of the two modes of engagement. Conceptual cognitions, which engage their object through exclusion, have the following features. A causal feature, they're not produced by objective conditions, such as the presence of an external object nearby, but through the inner force of latent potencies or habits of mind. Objective feature, they do not depend on unique particulars to act as their appearing objects, particulars in the sense of specifically characterized phenomena, but they take on a universal or something constructed by conceptual cognition as their appearing objects, and this is on the side of an exclusionary cognition. And functional feature, they engage their objects in, in such a way that their location, time, and nature appear conflated. Uh, I'm not quite clear on myself, but I think they mean, based upon seeing this described in other places, that um, I think they mean that there's no specific one point of location or time or nature. Such cognitions are known as cognitions that engage by exclusion. Engaging by, how does engaging by exclusion take place? Say a pot appears to conceptual cognition, apprehending a pot, and let that concept of a pot arise in your conceptual mind. Not all the aspects such as being produced and permanent and so on are that are identified with the pot in terms of location, time, and nature appear to that conceptual cognition and the hint is that they do appear to a non-conceptual cognition. 
Instead, only one of these features appears. Even a single object such as a pot has innumerable features that are its own attributes. So every phenomena has um, many different attributes, and we tend to focus on the attributes that the sense cognition, cognitions, consciousnesses apprehend directly, such as shape, color, and so on. But there's all these other um, aspects that of, or characteristics of objects, such as whether they're produced or impermanent or not, or um, whether they have a nature of being hard or, or soft or of uh, temperature and so on and so forth. Instead, only one of these features appears. When you think of a pot, there's basically one feature of potness that appears to your mind. Even a single object such a pot has innumerable features that are its own attributes, such as the pot being a permanent produced, arising from effort, and so on. When a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot engages its object, the pot, it engages it ex through excluding that which is not a pot, what we might label non-pot. In this case, it does not engage the pot as a permanent, where the pot is produced, and so on, through having excluded the pot as permanent, where the pot is unproduced, and so on. Such cognitions are therefore known as engaging through exclusion or engaging through differentiating the attributes. This topic is explained clearly by the Buddhist master logician Dharmakirti. Here is a somewhat lengthy excerpt from his Pramanavartika. Uh, let's not read through that whole uh, thing, which basically repeats what we went through. I'll read the beginning and the, and the end of the quote. If inferential cognition apprehends real things, then when having ascertained one attribute, it would apprehend all attributes. In the case of exclusion, this fault does not arise. Oh God, how do we explain that? Let's see. The problem of the non-occurrence of other instances of valid cognition does not apply only to something that has been directly perceived. Oh, geez. I think we have to skip this in order to get through this material tonight, if that's okay with you guys. We'll skip the detail because we got the gist of it from the, the lead-in. Okay. So following after the quote, the same text also says, well, the ending verses, therefore it's clearly established that inferential reasons have exclusions as their objects. So inference identifies um, conceptual objects, generally characterized objects that are identified by excluding what they're not. So the object of an inferential valid cognition is a, a generally characterized phenomena that um, is established through exclusion. Otherwise, when the subject of a proposition is established, what predicate other than that subject would also be would not also be thereby established convoluted language anyway the same text also says 
On what grounds is it known that an exclusion is made through language and inferential evidence and that a real thing is not made known directly by them? This is known because additional valid cognitions and statements are employed to know the object further. The uh, explanation of that is consider a non-conceptual consciousness such as a direct sense perception. For example, when an eye consciousness apprehending a pot sees the pot, it necessarily sees simultaneously all the factors that are identified with the pot in terms of location, time, and nature, and permanence, and having been produced. So it doesn't consciously recognize produced and impermanent, but it sees, according to this system, it sees simultaneously those factors as well as its location, time, and nature. Although it sees such attributes that cognition contacts the object, the pod, which, which is its objective condition, without depending on either the label pot or the thought that's a pot. The appearance of the pot through the objective condition presenting itself to cognition comes about as if it were transferred into the sense consciousness by being replicated as the image. Therefore, minds that engage affirmatively without conflating location, time, and nature necessarily take the unique particular object itself as an object through its appearing just as it is. Skipping the quote, moreover, as um, already explained in the context of describing the difference between conceptual and non-conceptual consciousness, when any conception engages an object if it engages by way of qualifying it in terms of a type or a universal qualities or attributes, difference or non-difference, location, time, and so on, then it must be posited as engaging through exclusion. Thus Chandra Kirti in his commentary on Nagarjuna's Mula Manyamaka Karaka is called the clear words in Sanskrit, the Prasanna Pada says, for this is to demonstrate merely that the five sense consciousnesses are dumb, which Eric referred to earlier. The distinctions made between dumb sense consciousnesses and the conceptual consciousnesses that are comparatively smarter. Furthermore, engaging an object through differentiating its attributes and engaging through exclusion have much the same meaning. For example, when a conceptual consciousness apprehends the tree, it engages its object, a tree, by excluding from its object the tree's attributes, such as the tree's impermanence, and so forth, and engages only treeness. Also, when one brings to mind the conceptual cognition of a pod, for example, it may feel as if a single cognition perceives and apprehends simultaneously the pot's lip, base, and belly. Right, similar to when we think of tree, we see like the whole tree all at once. We see the whole pot in our mind all at once, right? But this is due to the speed with which cognitions operate. Um, were we to deeply investigate how our conceptual cognitions engage the object, then when we have the conceptual cognition, the pot's limp, <laughs> 
we would see that we are not having the conceptual cognition of its base and its belly. Right? We, we see a pot in our mind's eye and then we scan like the bottom and the top of it and we don't see the other parts. Were we to deeply investigate how our conceptual cognitions engage the object, then when we have the conceptual cognition the pot's lip, we would see that we are not having the conceptual cognition its base or its belly. When we have the conceptual cognition the pot's base, we are not apprehending anything other than its base. The mind focuses on simply a pot in general, which is a collection of parts and things. This is a pot it evidently does not consider its individual part parts, sorry, and think this is its base and this is its belly. And only conceptually can we identify where the base and the and the belly and the lip are because they have no distinct demarcation from the other parts, right? Only conceptually. Thus, when conceptual cognitions engage an object, they do not engage it through a real object presenting an image of itself to the mind. Rather, they engage it by process of subjective delineation. They engage something that is isolated from other features or just the attribute to which the mind is directed. They do not engage anything else. So the quote is the ascertainments and verbal expressions that serve to remove false impositions are as numerous as those superimpositions of false attributes, thus they all have distinct reference, which is uh, one of the more convoluted quotes <laughs> that we'll see. That doesn't seem to add any value. In contrast, non-conceptual consciousnesses, such as sense consciousness, are said to engage their objects without differentiating their attributes. Generally speaking, when non-conceptual consciousnesses engage their objects, they engage to the object presenting an image of itself, just as a reflection appears in a mirror. They do not engage through in subjective delineation or analysis. Whatever object is engaged, all the visible parts or qualities of the object are engaged. And this is known as engaging without differentiating the attributes. Therefore, all the qualities of a seen thing are seen. Moreover, engaging by way of a linguistic convention is also characterized as an engagement through exclusion. In general, this term linguistic convention is mentioned frequently in text and valid cognition. We speak about linguistic convention within the subdivision of name and, and linguistic convention and applying a linguistic convention to an object. And Okay, so these are different ways of referring to the same thing. In the context of explaining the theory of exclusion of other, a conceptual cognition that engages through a linguistic linguistic convention refers to a mind that extends out to its object through a process involving a universal, which is the linguistic convention, that is dependent on linguistic conventions. So um, the word tree, <laughs> to simplify things, is an example of a linguistic convention. And that this is the engagement through exclusion. Conversely, a mind engaged by way of the object presenting itself is an engagement through affirmation. So they're going to beat this topic too dead pulp, repeating it over and over again. Accordingly, engagement through exclusion and engagement through affirmation can be defined in the following manner. Engagement through exclusion is to engage an object through differentiating its attributes. 
definition of engagement through affirmation is to engage an object without differentiating its attributes. So the sense consciousnesses are dumb in that they don't differentiate the attributes of objects. They just see all of them at once, all of those that are presented to it, which is like the, the story of the seven blind men who check out the elephant and they all come away with, you know, it's a different thing because that's all they experience. In general, there are two things that engage through exclusion, language and cognition. Language engages through exclusion, encompasses all intelligible sound. Cognition that engages through exclusion encompasses all conceptual cognition as to whether or not persons can be characterized as engaging through exclusion. There are two opinions. One posits persons to engage through exclusion and one that's not. Uh, they just throw that in there. Huh? All non-conceptual consciousnesses are cognitions that engage through affirmation. In brief language and conceptual cognitions that engage through exclusion, through other exclusion, through the force of desire, through categories, universals, differentiation, and so on, are all phrases that have the same meaning, engagement through exclusion. Likewise, minds that engage through establishing the object through an affirmative, affirming image, through the causal capacity of a real thing without depending on linguistic convention, with a clearly appearing object and without differentiating the attributes and so on, have much the same meaning of a positive um, engagement uh, affirmation. In the case of a direct perception of a pot, all the attributes based on the pot, such as produced and so on, appear and are engaged. But a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot having made hair-splitting distinctions among the, its attributes engages only one feature at a time. Skipping the quote, the explanation of many points related to linguistic reference by Buddhist masters can be understood on the basis of this view that language and conceptual cognitions engage their objects through exclusion. Um, having applied the linguistic convention cow to a white cow's assembled conglomeration of hump, dewlap, and so on. And you all remember what the dewlap is, right? <laughs> When one later sees a black cow, a cognition of the universal thinking, this is a cow, arises. In contrast, this is in contrast to the explanation of, uh, we don't have to go through the, the uh, other guys. Skipping to the next paragraph. Thus, according to Buddhist epistemologists, when this cognition of the universal is deeply investigated, it's posited to be a cognition of resemblance. Furthermore, this cognition of the resemblance of phenomena of similar type arises from our innate latent predispositions. We're talking about conceptual cognition here because of the cognition of the universal. In the case of linguistic convention, using the based upon the word pot and the referent pot, in no way do they posit an objective relation between language and reference. Such a relation comes about solely through the capacity of customary classificatory conventions. Thus, they maintain that language indicating its reference is highly contingent on what the speaker wishes to say. It's a very long-winded presentation of uh, uh, people of the way we communicate through language. Okay, the sevenfold typology of cognition. 
and uh, they use it. Uh, they use an example of a person engaging in a line of inquiry, how the mind engages an object in progressive stages, as opposed to presenting these seven uh, aspects of cognition uh, in sort of a, a vacuum separate from each other, but um, instead present them as a, a process of one leading to another, uh, going from uh, the sort of lowest level of uh, uh, valid cognition to the highest level of valid cognition. In general, uh, let's see, uh, it's from this perspective that the sevenfold typology is presented and it's understood to have been introduced by Chopachuki Senge. And here it is. A mind engages its object in two ways. Engaging one standpoint without differentiating it from an opposing standpoint and engaging one standpoint while differentiating it from an opposing standpoint. So in the first case, uh, option A1 is doubt. We don't really understand the, the opinion or the uh, standpoint well enough to differentiate it in any way from others. And so we experience doubt, lack of understanding, lack of clarity and conviction. When doubting that something is impermanent, we can also doubt that it might be permanent. So this is engaging without differentiating from that opposing standpoint. Option B can be of two types. Okay, so we uh, dif uh, differentiating it from an opposing standpoint has two types. Engaging it in a way that does not accord with the actual state of affairs. And engaging it in a way that accords with reality. So of the two types, option one is distorted cognition and option two has two types so we have doubt about a situation and um which is not clearly differentiating that situation from other situations um, and that results in one of two different experiences of that situation either we wrongly interpret what's going on which is called distorted cognition, or we have, uh, we, uh, we do experience, understand it in accord with the way it is, which has two types, engaging an object without con counteracting contradictory uh, superimpositions and engaging an object by way of counteracting them. So one's a, an exclusionary cognition and one's a, an affirmative. Of these two types, they, they, they present this in a, a sequential, but they made it sort of convoluted, unfortunately. Of these two types of cognition, option A is indeterminate perception. Option B can be of two types. And option B, engaging an object by way of counteracting contradictory superimposition. So we're gaining further, in each step, we're gaining further and further clarity about what we're experiencing, right? So the two types are engaging an object already realized before or engaging an object not realized before, a newly experienced object versus a subsequent cognition. Of these two types, option one is subsequent cognition. Option two consists of two types, a newly realized object. It has two types, counteracting superimpositions by clearly seeing a particular, specifically characterized phenomenon, 
counteracting them without clearly seeing it. Of these two types, option A is direct perception. Option B can be of two types, following a correct reason or not following one. So counteracting uh, those, mis those uh, mistaken possibilities without clearly seeing the specifically characterized phenomena means that you've done it conceptually with uh, inferential cognition. And inferential cognition can have two types. It can be valid by having a correct reason, or it can be invalid by not having a correct reason. Of these two types, option one is inference. Option two is correct assumption. Among these seven, five are not valid, and two, direct perception and inference are valid. In this way, the topology of cognition in terms of seven categories present on the basis of how the mind engages its object. Now let's explain each of them by relating them to how these types of cognition engage their objects in progressive stages in the case of a single person. First, say there is a cognition within our own mental continuum that either reifies or denies an object's features, owing to a misknowing, confused about the way that object exists. This, this is distorted. Then that strong distorted conviction is undermined through the use of consequential reasoning and a mind of doubt arises. It's like you, you think you see something and then you see some contradictory evidence of what you thought you saw. Next, thinking about the topic rationally, using a correct reason characterized by the three modes and so on, that mind of doubt is removed. The three modes are uh, three aspects of a valid inferential statement or reason. Um, that mind of doubt is removed and correct assumption arises. Not satisfied with that alone, we contemplate again and again with the wisdom of fine investigation and a valid inference, a stable ascertainment of what is to be inferred, inferentially established, sorry, arises. But this mere ascertainment is not enough where we need to continuously cultivate familiarity with what has been inferentially ascertained so that this knowledge becomes almost like second nature with our mind thus there arises the subsequent cognition that is the continuity of the mind that has familiarized itself in this way. So we revisit it over and over again. In the end, so we re revisit the inferential cognition, the conceptual identification of the true nature of our experience over and over again. And in the end, the knowledge derived from the three modes of a correct reason to arrives at perception, meaning direct cognition. That is the mind that familiarizes itself with the certainty gained by the inferential valid cognition through repeated acquaintance must in the end transform into direct perception, a cognition whose object appears clearly without being mixed with the universal and in an affirmative way. But a more, a mere indeterminate perception where that perception does not ascertain its object, even though it clearly appears, is not the end point of the process. All this constitutes a presentation of the sevenfold typology in accordance with the approximate order in which they might arise in an individual. Um, as in the case of the sevenfold typology of cognition, distorted cognition. So now we go through them in uh, detail. 
as in the case of the sevenfold typology, distorted cognition can be explained in relation to a single person's stages of knowing an object that exists in a hidden manner, hidden from direct perception, right? Owing to a cognition that does not understand the way in which the, its object exists, there arises inappropriate attention that views its object in a distorted manner. That inappropriate attention, having exaggeratedly imputed certain qualities, such as being attractive, repulsive, strengthen one's attachment or aversion through the force of attachment or aversion when engages in non-virtuous conduct of body, speech, and mind. Things are like ramping up here, causing oneself and others to be bound up in suffering. These distorted cognitions that engage their objects in a distorted manner induce mental afflictions such as attachment and become causing conditions of unwanted suffering. Therefore, to stop the cognition that initiates the causal process of suffering and so on, one must first recognize this distorted and misknowing mind and then must, must counteract it. So one should ask, what is the correct situation or cognition? Or what is a distorted or misknowing cognition? These are differentiated based on whether the mind has the support of valid cognition, whether its object exists in the way the mind beholds it. For example, if upon seeing a bright light in the far distance, a cognition arises thinking that this light is light reflected from a crystal when in fact it is light reflected from ice, then this cognition is distorted. If one approaches the place and looks and a cognition arises understanding that its light is light reflected from ice, immediately canceling out the earlier thinking that this cognition becomes correct cognition in this way. When when the latter cognition functions to counteract the object as cognized by the previous one, valid and non-valid minds are demarcated clearly. Uh, skipping all the quotes, um, the definition of a distorted cognition is a mind that engages its main object in a distorted manner. Uh, skipping the quote, thus distorted cognitions are those holding what is existent to be non-existent, holding what is non-existent to be existent, holding what is not the case to be the case, and holding what is the case to be so when categorized. Distorted cognitions are of two types, distorted conceptual and distorted non-conceptual. Examples of the first are a conceptual cognition apprehending it to be dawn when there is a full moon. <laughs> thinking that uh, the light of the moon means it's dawn, or a conceptual cognition apprehending a rabbit's horns, and a conceptual cognition apprehending sound is permanent. Examples of distorted non-conceptual consciousness are visual consciousness to which a snow mountain appears blue, a sense consciousness that perceives a white conch shell as yellow, or to one uh, to which one moon appears as two, a visual consciousness that perceives a mirage as water, and a sense consciousness to which trees appear to be moving, when instead one itself is that is moving. Doubt may be explained by way of the following its illustration. Suppose in one's own mind stream there's a strong distorted conviction that sound is permanent. When one investigates whether there's any valid cognition that refutes the object as cognized by a wrong view such as this, and when somebody else presents a correct consequence of one's own position that shows that sound is impermanent, when one reads and critically reflects on treatises that establish sound to be impermanent, the conviction that sound is permanent loosens. At this point there arises a doubt not tending toward fact.
this phrase, doubt tending or not tending toward fact, the thought that sound is only probably permanent. <laughs> uh, this is something that we don't really cling to as a big uh, value or belief, but then when one analyzes the meaning of that more deeply than before, when someone else posits a correct proof statement showing that sound is impermanent, there arises a doubt tending toward the fact the thought that probably sound is impermanent. Definition of doubt is a cognition that on its own vacillates between two standpoints with uncertainty about the objects. In the example, sound is impermanent. The phrase vacillates between two standpoints with uncertainty is impermanent in one, st uh, is, impermanent, uh, is in one standpoint and is not impermanent is in the other standpoint. The compendium says, what is doubt? Any uncertainty in the sense of having two mental attitudes or two objects. When categorized, there are three kinds of doubt. Doubt not tending toward the fact, balanced doubt, like right in the middle, and doubt tending towards the fact. And we'll skip the, the examples, go right to correct assumption, which is uh, explained by way of an illustration there of methods for transforming a doubt in one's mind that tends toward the fact. Thinking sound is probably impermanent to the nature of mind convinced of that. One can depend on a correct reason put forward by somebody else, or one can think it through for oneself. And these are the two types of inference. Inference for, for others and inference for oneself. From this arises the correct assumption, thinking that sound definitely is impermanent. The mind observing that sound is impermanent, that is convinced that sound is impermanent, until it ascertains this with valid cognition is said to be a correct assumption. This is primarily from the perspective of how a correct assumption arises on the basis of a reason with regard to a hidden object. Um, the definition of a correct assumption is a construing awareness that conceives with conviction the main thing that is its engaged object but does not obtain a realization of its object of scrutiny the phrase the main thing that is engaged is its engaged object excludes distorted cognition from overlapping with correct assumption with conviction excludes doubt from overlapping with it and conceives excludes direct perception from overlapping with it does not obtain a realization of its object of scrutiny excludes subsequent cognition as well as inferential cognition from overlapping with correct assumption. The correct assumption is, is uh, sort of a lightweight reasoning that doesn't have the uh, rigor of a inferential cognition. The term correct assumption does not appear explicitly in the text, but is referred to uh, by Shantarak Shita, we'll skip the quote. These lines appear to implicitly present the notion of correct assumption. This part of the text presents the mamamsa assertion of a type of valid cognition arising from speech, a type that is other than valid perception and inference. Even our own tradition accepts that there are cognitions arising from speech, such as from the testimony of a reliable witness, that apprehend objects hidden to our senses and be difficult to posit these as either direct perceptions or inference. So these cognitions cannot be other than correct assumptions. So somebody tells you this and this happened and that person is reliable, has no reason to be telling 
align and so you come about with a correct assumption. Therefore, just as this citation from Shantarakshita's text has been cited in some writings of Tibetan masters source for the notion of correct assumption, we recite it here. When categorized, there's five types of correct assumption without any reason, with a contradictory reason, with an inclusive reason, with an unestablished reason, and with a reason that is not properly understood. So they're all reasons, but they're just not the, you know, the best type of reason, which is that which has to, uh, fulfills the three modes of a valid inferential cognitive reasoning. I'll skip all the examples. And uh, so two paragraphs down, there's a, a paragraph, a small paragraph. There's also an alternate way of categorizing correct assumption into three types. Correct assumption without any reason, not understanding the reason, and with a fallacious reason. And uh, they give examples for these, which I'll skip and go right to inferential cognition, which is uh, maybe explained by way of the following illustration. Take the case of someone who has generated within her mind stream a correct assumption observing sound as impermanent. When that person, out of desire to know that sound is impermanent, engages in powerful analytical meditation through relying on mindfulness and meta-awareness, um, the result is an inferential cognition. Furthermore, such an inference is grounded in perception. In its origins, it is grounded in perceptual auditory consciousness apprehending sound. And in the end, it is grounded in a yogic direct perception, realizing sound to be impermanent. A yogic direct perception implies um, that it comes about through uh, the, the path of seeing but uh, they haven't really defined yogic direct perception, I think, here yet. The definition of inferential cognition is a construing awareness that through depending on its basis, a correct reason, is non-deceptive regarding its object of, of comprehension. So an inferential cognition is a construing awareness, construing meaning cognitive, uh, sorry, conceptual, that arises depending on a correct reason, and is non-deceptive regarding its object of comprehension. An inference, the quote, an inference for one's own sake is this, perceiving the object through the trimodal reason. When one infers the thesis from seeing the reason and remembering the relation, that is called inferential cognition. When categorized in terms of the object of comprehension that is validly known, there are three types of inferential cognition. Inferential cognition based on empirical fact, based on popular convention, and based on trustworthy testimony. And in each of the, these are three different types of reasons that are used in a syllogism where you have a predicate, sorry, a subject, a predicate, and a reason. And so one type of reason is empirical fact, another is popular convention, another is trustworthy testimony under oath. The definition of inferential cognition based on empirical fact is a construing awareness, an awareness that construes through conceptuality, that through depending on correct evidence based on empirical fact is non-deceptive regarding its object of comprehension, which is a slightly hidden object. 
So the object of inferential cognition is a slightly hidden object, and that's the only way of getting at slightly hidden objects, meaning objects that are hidden from direct perception. An example is an inferential cognition realizing that sound is impermanent because it's produced. I uh, will skip the quote, which states that an inferential cognition based on empirical fact does not rely on scriptural testimony. The definition of inferential cognition based on popular convention is a construing awareness that through depending on correct evidence based on popular convention is non-deceptive regarding its object comprehension, which is a language-based popular convention. For an example, an inferential cognition relays in that the word moon can be used to refer to the rabbit bear, which is how Tibetans uh, refer to the moon. So just how, lang how uh, popular convention works as like, um, this is called that, and that is this. Uh, skipping the quote, the definition of inferential cognition based on testimonies and construing awareness that through depending on correct evidence based on trustworthy testimonies, non-deceptive regarding its object of comprehension, a very hidden object. So um, we've gone from three different types of objects to a slightly hidden object, which is the object of inferential cognition. And then we had... Uh, the uh, language-based popular convention and a cognition of that. And the, uh, um, there are slightly hidden objects. There are language, conventional language objects. And then there are very hidden objects. Very hidden objects are objects such as the, uh, the workings of karma. An example is an inferential cognition that realizes its object of comprehension, a very hidden object in dependence on a reason. It's reason, a scripture that has passed the threefold analysis. So the idea is that there are certain topics that are only um, known clearly and correctly by the Buddha, such as the workings of karma. And uh, so those can only be understood through referring to the, the scriptures that um, uh, preserve the words of the Buddha regarding the workings of karma. And in accepting those, one doesn't accept them at face values, but one performs an analysis of them as to whether they pass what's called a threefold analysis, which we will get into subsequently in a subsequent cognition, in a subsequent section of the text. Subsequent cognition is explained by illustration, someone who has a valid con inferential cognition realizing sound is impermanent in that person's mind stream later moments of the continuum of valid cognition observing that sound is impermanent are subsequent cognition. The definition of it is a cognition that realizes again by force of a previous valid cognition an object already realized by an earlier valid cognition that induced it. Skipping the quote, this means that subsequent cognition which is a valid cognition of remembering something is the consciousness that through recollection apprehends the object that was that the earlier valid cognition that had induced it had already apprehended and fully understood. Thus it is subsequent cognition, but it is not accepted to be valid cognition. When categorized, subsequent cognition has two types, perceptual subject cognition and conceptual. 
just like the two types of direct valid cognition. Examples of the first are the subsequent perceptual sense consciousness, such as the second moment of an eye consciousness apprehending a pot, and a subsequent perceptual mental consciousness, such as the second moment of a clairvoyant perception, nobody knowing rather somebody else's mind. Interestingly, when they when this text has been talking about the object of a visual sense consciousness, they often use the example of a pot rather than this color and shape of a pot, which personally I have found to be sort of odd. But um, continuing, conceptual subsequent cognition is of two types, a conceptual subsequent cognition induced by perception and one by inference. An example of the first is an ascertaining consciousness knowing blue that is induced by sense perception, apprehending blue, and the second is knowing a pot to be impermanent that is induced by the valid cognition realizing a pot. So they're just sort of going through the options that are pretty clear. The above explanation of later moments of perception and inference as subsequent cognition is based upon a gentleman named Dharmotara and his text, and I'll skip the quote. Direct perception can be explained by way of the illustration if somebody has a subsequent cognition realizes the sound is impermanent. Having thoroughly accustomed herself to sound being impermanent by way of analyzing it and again, finally at the end of the gradual process of moving through the nine stages of mental stabilization, shamatha and so on, there rises a valid perception realizing clearly that sound is impermanent, unmixed with the universal. That is yogic direct perception. Okay, so not path of seeing, but having accomplished the nine stages of shamatha provides a valid basis for yogic direct perception, where uh, which can take a, val a valid inferential cognition into the realm of a valid direct perception. The definition of direct perception is a cognition that is unmistaken and free of conceptuality. In other words, there's some cognitions that are free of conceptuality but are mistaken. For example, an eye consciousness apprehending a pot. And let's see. The, the quote says, Some, someone with eye consciousness cognizes blue but does not think. This is blue. The phrase, someone with eye consciousness cognizes blue, indicates that it is an, an unmistaken cognition. The phrase, but does not think this is blue, indicates it's free of conceptuality. This quotation completely presents the definition of perception, direct, valid perception. Dharmakirti's drop of reason says direct perception is unmistaken of free conceptuality. Free of conceptuality does not mean being free of the substance of thought or free of thought in itself. In itself, it means being free of a construing awareness that apprehends word and referent as suitable to be associated. Furthermore, since this cognition itself is not a construing awareness that apprehends a word and reference as suitable to be associate, associated, the matter in which it is free of conceptuality was explained just a little while ago. Unmistaken means with regard to the appearing object, the nature of the conceptuality that direct perception the nature of the conceptuality that perception is free of and the way in which conceptual cognition operates with linguistic reference and so on was discussed earlier. So direct perception, unmistaken and free of conceptuality. When categorized, there are four kinds of direct perception, sense, mental, 
reflexive awareness and yogic perception. And this breakdown of direct valid cognition, i.e. direct perception, into these four categories is one of the most important features of understanding the system of pramana or valid cognition. And it's <laughs> we're finally getting to it. Uh, sense perception, mental perception, reflexive awareness, and yogic perception. Now note, not all mental perception are direct perceptions. The definition of sense direct perception is cognition that is unmistaken and free of conceptual and arises from its uncommon dominant condition, i.e. its unique sense base, a physical sense faculty. This is dominant condition equals sense base. This has five types, uh, five types of sense cognitions. I'll skip the subsequent sentences. There's, uh, let's see. Uh, we're still doing sense cognitions. Uh, let's see, the, okay. Uh, first it says there's five types. So sense direct cognition is a cognition unmistaken for your conceptuality arises from its dominant condition of physical sense faculty. Five types of uh, range from a sense direct perception apprehending a form to one apprehending a tangible object to go through the five senses. The definition of a sense direct ap perception apprehending a form is unmistaken free of conceptuality arises in dependence upon its subjective condition of form and its undominant, uncommon dominant condition the eye. There are three kinds, a sense direct perception apprehending a form that is a valid cognition, one that is a subsequent cognition, and one that is an indeterminate perception. So there's three kinds of cognition that arise from the dominant, uncommon dominant condition of the physical sense faculty of the eye. And those are a sense direct perception apprehending a form that is a valid cognition, one that is a subsequent cognition, and one that is an indeterminate. Examples of these are respectively the first moment of a sense direct perception. Apprehending a form is a sense direct perception. Apprehending a form that's a valid cognition. The second is the second moment of a sense direct perception. Apprehending a form is subsequent cognition and a sense direct perception apprehending a form that directly induces a doubt thinking did I do not see X, Y, or Z is the third type, which is um, an indeterminate perception. These same types apply to the other four senses. The definition of mental direct perception is a cognition that is unmistaken and free of conceptuality and that arises in dependence upon its own uncommon dominant condition, a mental sense faculty. The compendium says the mental um, cognition that perceives form and so on being non-conceptual and engaging with the image of, a, of an experience is also a type of perception. So here's this breakdown of mental cognition into two types, direct valid cognition and conceptual cognition. And here we talk about the direct valid cognitive type of mental sense perception. And um, the mental cognition that perceives form and so on being non-conceptual and engaging with the image of an experience is also a type of perception. And it's geared towards uh, the sense 
metacognition because of the word image. In general, there are diverse opinions on the question of what exactly is a mental perception of an ordinary person. The implication of that phrase of an ordinary person is that um, superior individuals from the path of seen and above arias do uh, always experience mental direct perception. So the question is, can common mortals like us have such a, an animal? Um, there's different opinions on that and also whether such a mental perception of an ordinary person is capable of giving rise to ascertainment, actual ascertainment of its object, or rather whether it's sort of subconscious registering of a sense cognition that actually is not ascertained or apprehended. We'll discuss these options in volume four. Perceptual reflexive awareness, reflexive awareness, self-awareness is the subject image that is of the nature of um, reflexive awareness. Remember the subject image? When initially they talked about the image that appears in the sense consciousness and they said there's an object image and a subject image. And the object image is the image cast by an object into the sense perception and the subject image is the image of the subject that exists in the sense cognition and the image of a subject is a really shady sort of idea but this idea that consciousness itself has some uh, sort of entityness to it and that the characteristics of consciousness itself create something that is observable through self-awareness so we uh, self-awareness meaning so uh, consciousness can be conscious of itself and if you say that consciousness is conscious of itself then there must be some object consciousness that is the object of the the, the cognition of self-awareness it's a very slippery slope there, particularly if you encounter a Madhyamaka, they tend to dispense with self-awareness with a lot of arrogance and jokes. The definition of a perceptual reflexive awareness is a subject image awareness that's in unmistaken and free of conceptuality. Reflexive awareness and perceptual reflexive awareness are synonymous. In other words, reflexive awareness is only perceptual and the word perceptual means direct non-conceptual is the way this book is using the terminology of perceptual it just means direct non-conceptual so self-awareness by definition is always direct and non-conceptual reflexive awareness is a consciousness directed exclusively inward Devendra Bhuti's text says, however, the cognition that illuminates the previous cognition, inasmuch as it has the nature of illuminating itself, is established to be aware of itself reflexively and not by virtue of being experienced by some other cognition. In other words, we can, we can uh, experience the immediately preceding cognition through self-awareness. The presentation of reflexive awareness and the differences between whether reflexive awareness is accepted or not, accepted according to subsects within the Buddhist own tennis systems, will be discussed later. And the nuance is that in that uh, quote, however, the cognition that illuminates the previous cognition in as much as it has the nature of illuminating itself is established to be aware of itself reflexively, not by virtue of being experienced some other cognition. 
means that we can experience the, the, the moment before cognition without conceptuality, but through self-awareness. And the question mark that it produces in the mind of somebody who's sophisticated and acquiring, such as all of you, is, well, um, uh, if, we're cog if we're cognizing the moment before the present moment, then that present that prior moment no longer exists and how can we cognize it other than through a conceptual image so there's a big argument about that right so that's the quandary volume four <laughs> the definition of yogic direct perception i'll stop after this we're over time and all we can finish up next week but to go through yogic definition if that's okay everybody okay with a few more minutes Thank you very much. Is a mental perception bearing an image of the truth, <laughs> reality, and free of conceptuality that arises in dependence on its own uncommon dominant condition? So hopefully we're all familiar with that clunky language by now. And in this case, what is that uncommon dominant condition? Meditative concentration, that is a union of calm abiding and special insights, shamatha vipassana, is the uncommon dominant condition of yogic direct perception. From the uh, Pramanavartika, the yogic cognition mentioned above arises from meditation. The nets of conceptions have been having been destroyed. It depends, it, sorry, it appears only clearly. As for that, it is mentioned earlier in the second chapter of Exposition of Valid Cognition, Pramanavartika, establishing validity, the second chapter is Pramana City, that yogic perception is a consciousness in a yogin's mind stream that directly realizes the truth about reality, some feature of it. This is because, A, it arises through the power of meditative concentration, that's a union of shamatha vipassana, perceiving ultimate reality, and B, this is a consciousness free of conceptuality and unmistaken about ultimate reality. This explanation of the definition divisions of direct perception is from the perspective of the Sautrantika school. According to Chittamatra Yogacara Madhyamaka traditions, the definition of perception is a cognition that is free of conceptuality and is not mistaken on account of any temporary causes of error. The definition of sense perception is a cognition that arises from stable latent potencies and is free of conceptuality and that arises from its own uncommon dominant condition of physical sense faculty. The other types of direct perception are like those posited above. So in these two traditions, the definition of the two of the first two of the four types of uh, direct cognition are given slightly differently. Also, Dharmakirti's ascertainment says other cognitions, i.e. those different from unreliable ones, have a consistent continuity for as long as samsara lasts because the latent potencies for them are stable. Uh, from the perspective of their reliability for conventional act, action, they are valid cognitions. They are said to arise from stable latent potencies and that they arise through the activation of the latent potencies of a similar type and so on, which are their causes those latent potencies are stable in the sense that they persist, persist continuously. It's a little bit of a non sequitur here, <laughs> right? It's like, what are they talking about all of a sudden? We're on the four types of direct perception. 
So I think we'll come back to that next week. When direct perception is categorized, there are the four of sense direct and so on. When sense direct is categorized, there are the five from sense apprehending forms to tangibles. And this is similar to the Sautrantika's tradition. And uh, he's implying that we're still in the Chittamatra Yogacara Madhyamaka, I think, tradition. And so let's stop there and we'll leave indeterminate perception hanging in suspense for seven days. <laughs> Any comments, observations, direct perceptions, inferential cognitions? Any hidden objects? Any hidden objections? Any slightly hidden objections? The, uh, the use of sound is impermanent are they trying to train us into impermanence or are they just they are they're trying they... to hypnotize you into believing that right. sound is impermanent by see, constantly... see sound is impermanent well think everything else is impermanent I, they keep using that like well you know when you think about the different objects of the sense consciousness as sound is the most is probably the most observably impermanent one right because yeah. forms seem to you know be stable and uh i don't know smells can last for a while <laughs> so anything else so we'll conclude next week. So I circulated the reading for next week. We'll go through that other chapter as sort of a summary. I'll also, um, we'll look at the uh, list of topics that I've circulated before. I'll circulate again. And uh, we'll also do some of the definitions from the root text of low-rick classifications of mental states by Kempo Sultram So which I have not circulated, but we'll look on screen. And that's one of the texts that you can purchase from the Notarta Institute. So I'm not allowed to circulate it in entirety. So let's uh, conclude with your dedication of merit. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Regent's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you very much. Nice to see you all. Take Thank care. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Recording stopped.